this time of year we celebrate the birth of Messiah Jesus. And we don't get into all the different ideas about exactly when he was born, but it is this time of year that we celebrate his birth. In John's Gospel, he talks about the coming into the world of of the Lord Jesus. And he describes it in very wonderful terms. He uses a Greek word called logos, the logos, coming into the world. And he refers to its translated in English as word, the word. But its Greek is the logos. It's a very old Greek word, apparently ancient Greek word. There are Greek writings uh, about 500 B.C. that uh, talk about, describe Logos and the idea of Logos. So John uses the word that was very familiar, of course, to people at the time. And he uses the word to say that uh, the coming of Messiah, Jesus, into the world is the coming of the Logos. Because it was a very interesting word, Logos. And it was understood to mean ground, the grounds for something, the foundation for something. You see, everybody is searching for reality. What is reality? Uh, I remember dealing with a man, a number of them, but one in particular comes to mind, who had a number of years ago, he had a journey on LSD, and he had what they called a bad trip on LSD. And he was struggling with reality, and he kept saying, I don't know what's real. I don't know what's real. And he was hallucinating. And he wasn't able to differentiate between what was real and what was not. He didn't know what was real. So human beings have struggled with the whole idea of reality uh, since the very beginning. And so the Greek word logos has many different applications and meanings. So it means the grounds for something, it means expectation, it means the word, as John used it. Also, it's used to for speech, for reason, or the rationale for something, reason for something, discourse, or some use it in terms of used in terms of a premise, a premise for something. Now the other thing is that with the, the word logos, they used it as it could be uh, words that were uttered or expressed or words that were uh, kept within, not spoken. But the Logos, the idea of Logos, involved both applications or both uh, shades of meaning, the Logos. Now John, in the anointed, spirit-led writing of his Gospel, uses this Greek word Logos, and in English, of course, it's the word. And in John 1 and 14, after he is described how that the Word was in the beginning with God, the Word was God, and so on. And then he comes in verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And so we're going to maybe share a little bit this morning on the Word made flesh, the Word made flesh. He said the Word became flesh, and the Amplified Bible is interesting because uh, Wayne and Emily gave me a, my first amplified Bible in about 1977 and I still have it and I use it and I love the amplified Bible so here's the amp from the amplified it says the word became flesh or became human incarnate and it says and tabernacled or fixed his tent of flesh I like the expression his tent 
of flesh because he became a human being. But his body, if you like, became like a tent of flesh for himself. And it says he lived a while among us and we actually saw his glory. We saw his majesty. Such glory as an only begotten son receives from his father, full of grace, loving kindness, and truth. The word became flesh or the word made flesh. And so uh, perhaps it would be good for us just to think about that a little bit this morning as before we proceed further in terms of the manifesting of, uh, of the word from the very beginning, who is God and who was together with God at the very beginning, through whom everything that is seen has come into existence. So he became a human being so that he could be manifested and demonstrated and shown and expressed who and express who God really is, what God is really like. And yet, even though he came to do that, and that's who he was, it's amazing that so many people did not really know who he was. They didn't understand it. They didn't perceive it. So the Word was made flesh for a reason. The Word was made flesh so that he could be manifested, expressed, and people could understand and see who he really was. And yet many did not. And perhaps we could share just in its simplicity this morning for a few moments the importance of the kind of heart and mind to be able to recognize him. There's a certain kind of heart, certain kind of mind, or a certain kind of spirit that is required in order to recognize him. And that was true about Jesus of Nazareth, to recognize him, to know who he really was. For example, you could say, yeah, we know him. He's... He's Joseph's son. Joseph's the carpenter over here. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, Joseph's his father and Mary's his mother, right? We know him. And that's as far as some of their knowledge of him really went. For example, he would say, they kind of said to him, you know, Moses really demonstrated great power and authority because through Moses, manna came, bread came from heaven. And fed perhaps a million people. You might have fed, you know, four, five, four thousand or five thousand, but Moses fed many, many more people than that over a long period of time. And Jesus said that wasn't the real bread that comes from heaven. He said the real bread that comes from heaven is basically Himself. It gives life to the world, but they didn't recognize who He was. Now, what I think we'll present here this morning is that this is also true when it comes to understanding the scriptures, understanding the scriptures. Many read the scriptures and study the scriptures and preach and teach the scriptures, but do not really fully apprehend the scriptures. Just as many would have rubbed shoulders with Jesus and knew him in a certain way, but really didn't know him as the one that he came to manifest and portray, who is God. God. They didn't know him that way. But he came to manifest himself in that way. There's a little song that we sing from time to time, What Child Is This? The one we're going to listen to right now is What Child Is This? 
So, Pat, it's the last one on the list. The last one on the list. I'll get you to play that for us right now. What child is this? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our So many of them didn't really know. They didn't know what child this was. For example, John also records this uh, statement Jesus made while he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, of course, were the legal authorities with regards to the law and the scriptures. Scribes were the ones responsible for the uh, writing out again, the copying of the sacred text. But they also were the individuals that were thought of as the most um, astute, accomplished in understanding what the text said. They would be the ones that would be appealed to, what does this passage mean? They would go to the scribes. They were called lawyers with regards to the law. Jesus had a conversation with them and he said, he said, you search and investigate and pore over the scriptures diligently because you suppose and trust that you have eternal life through them. And these very scriptures testify about me. Now, there is this cohesion between the scriptures, the written word, and the word made flesh. There is this oneness. There's this likeness. There is this sameness 
different. One is written on parchment, but there is a very kindred likeness here between the written word and the word himself made flesh. Now, with regard to the scriptures, the sacred text, he said you you search them diligently, you investigate, and you pour over them. You know, you can just see them now with their long flowing beards and they're just studying the text and they must have everything exactly right. For example, in 586 B.C., after Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, the temple was looted, then destroyed by fire. The Jews were exiled. But 70 years later, the Jewish captives returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And according to the Bible, Ezra recovered a copy of the Torah. That would be Genesis through Numbers, through Deuteronomy. And he read it aloud to the whole nation. And from then on, the Jewish scribes solidified the following process for creating copies of the Torah and eventually other books in the Old Testament. And these are the various things they did. This is very interesting. They're, they were so careful and meticulous with regards to the sacred text. They could use only clean animal skins, both to write on and even to bind manuscripts. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe. They must verbalize each word aloud while they were writing. For God so loved the world in the beginning God. They had to verbalize it as they wrote it. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah every time they wrote it. Exactness, meticulous, precision, because everything must be exactly right. No errors can be made in the copying. There must be a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, each letter counted. And the document became invalid if two letters touched each other, because that could bring confusion. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document, the document could be stored only in sacred places, in synagogues, etc. As no document containing God's word could be destroyed, they were stored or buried uh, in a he place. The Hebrew term is, means hiding place, a special hiding place. So here you come down to the Dead Sea Scrolls being hidden in those caves. And were discovered, of course, many hundreds of years after they had been hidden. And some of the manuscripts that they had in possession were, you know, maybe 500 A.D. or something like that in terms of the age. Then they found the manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these were many, many hundreds of years earlier. So they compared, for example, let's say it was Jeremiah. They had scrolls from Jeremiah, you know, many hundreds of years B.C. or a few hundred years B.C. So there might have been a time lap of maybe 700 years or more. And then they compared the one that was late with the one that was written early. 
very, very few errors or mistakes or differences, almost none, because of this exactness that they used. And so Jesus, these are the kinds of things he would have in mind when he said you search and you investigate and you pour over the scriptures diligently because you suppose and trust that you have eternal life through them. And these very scriptures testify about me. The purpose of the written word is to testify to the word made flesh. And that's always been true. Now, it seems to be a simple point, but it's really profound. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning just thinking out loud about this wonderful thing, the word made flesh. There were two individuals when Jesus was but 40 days old. Mary and Joseph took him to the temple for a dedication. He would have been about 40 days old. 40 days. Circumcised on the eighth day. But a special dedication after the purification of the mother and certain time had transpired. They took him up to the temple to dedicate him because he's the first male child to be born. Now, I'm going to read this from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. There was a certain man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been divinely revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, or the Anointed One. He said, the Holy Spirit said to him, you're not going to die, you're not going to see physical death until you have seen the Messiah. That's, That's marvelous. That's great. Now, here's the thing. This man, why this man? I have, there's two individuals. One is Simeon, the other is Anna. And the question is, why them? Why them? Why them? See, there's a reason why them. But what we want to do this morning is we want to equate that with the understanding of the word ourselves, the scriptures, as we study, as we open the text, and as we read and embrace and understand. And the scripture must be revealed to us today exactly the way Jesus himself was revealed to them at that time. Not everybody understood who he was. A few did. The ones who were capable of acknowledging and, and, and receiving the revelation of who he really was had a certain kind of spirit or heart Pre- uh, prepared and equipped. So, anyway, he, it, the Holy Spirit, he, you can tell how close he's living to God, for the Holy Spirit to reveal this to him. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, he came into the temple enclosure and when the parents brought in the little child Jesus, just 40 days old, remember. And they were going to do for him what was customary according to the law. And Simeon, he walked up and he took him in his arms and he praised and thanked God and said, and now, Lord, you are releasing your servant to depart or to leave this world. In peace, in peace, according to your word, for with my own eyes I have seen your salvation. Isn't that wonderful? See, what 
we're saying is it's very simple, but it really is profound. The kind of heart condition, spiritual condition that Simeon was enjoying and experiencing was required in order to have the revelation of Messiah. But there's a certain kind of heart condition, spiritual condition we need to have the revelation of the word. I'm talking about where the word is revealed to us with power, as it really is. It says, and there also was at the same time, the same day, there also was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. See if you can figure out how old she really was. She, have it, she lived with her husband for seven years from her maidenhood. And as a widow, even for 84 years, she did not go out from the temple enclosure, but was worshiping night and day with fasting and prayer. And she too came up at that same hour and she returned thanks to God and talked of Jesus to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so the question as to why them, I think is self-evident. Why them? Now also in John, Jesus talking to the people and he said, uh, he said, no one, no one can come to me no one can come to me unless, and by coming to him, this this means recognizing who he is and coming to him based on a knowledge of who he really is. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there are two things here, at least two things that need to occur in order for individuals at that time to recognize who Jesus really was. Just to see him physically or listen to him didn't necessarily translate into knowing who he really was. You think everybody would have known who he was? No, they didn't. In order to recognize who he really was, there had to be a drawing of the Father. That means that God the Father, the Spirit of God, was operating on the interior of the person's life, revealing, convicting, communicating with the individual, tenderizing the spirit, breaking up, if you want, the fallow ground like we've talked about before, doing a work of divine grace in the life. Having done that, then now, the Father now does this so that he can plant his word into this individual so that that person has a recognition of who Jesus really is. And based on that recognition, they come to him. I just want to say this morning, it's exactly the same with regards to coming to the word. It's the same. It's the same. He said, it is written in the, prophet, in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. So the prophets had said and had written that they would come a time when they all would be taught of God. Jesus said that refers to the Father teaching the individual in such a way that the individual is capable now of recognizing me and knowing who I am and then coming to me. He said all that the Father gives me will come to me and those who come to me I will in no wise cast out. In the early church, 
I think this is very important. In the early church now, the new, after the day of Pentecost, they began to experience tremendous persecution from the Jewish leaders. And they had this issue, you remember, where they had some uh, difficulties with administration and need to select seven deacons to look after the affairs that the people had, and so they did that. These men who were full of faith and anointed of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, you know, we cannot do that ourselves as the apostles. He said, we can't do that. But he said, uh, we must, we've said this many times, he said, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If they did not continually give themselves to prayer, which is the communion and the fellowship with the Father, right? Now, you see, this is not just a decision that a human being makes. Where a human being says, I'm going to give myself continually to prayer. There has to be a calling of the Father to that. The Father works on the inside by the operation of divine grace to beckon and call and invite the individual into that place where there is the desire and the inclination from the inside, from inside, to give oneself, commit oneself to prayer, which is communion with God. Now, Peter said, this is essential for us. We must do this. We must do that. And we may not be distracted by even legitimate needs. There are many legitimate needs, but those legitimate needs must be looked after by others. And they're important because you need to select individuals who are spirit-filled to look after those. But for us, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have to give ourselves continually to prayer. Because the consequence of that, look, here, here it comes, the consequence of that now is the ministry of the Word. Now we're talking about ministry of the Word. We're not talking here just about being able to give a teaching or a Bible teaching or present a sermon. We're not talking here just about the human ability to read the scriptures and to have an understanding of the history of the Bible and, and the various stories and to give a commentary on what we have uh, received in our mind. It's not, that's, that's not ministering the word. Ministering the word is serving the word. Ministry has to do with the idea of serving it to others, serving it so that you have it, right? If you minister food, whatever you minister to somebody, you actually convey to them, you offer, you convey that to them. And Peter said, we, uh, our, our primary responsibility is to minister the word. There's more to this, and, and I think we'll just maybe close with, uh, when we come to the conclusion, we'll see that when the word is actually ministered like this, and I believe that this is the uh, pattern. If you want to, if you, if you, this is the pattern, the biblical pattern. This is the way it ought to be. Now we don't say these things to criticize anyone, or even ourselves, but just to say that there is a pattern, biblical pattern here, that is phenomenal. Because it has to do with the being made flesh, being made visible being capable of being seen, capable of being understood. So he said, we'll give ourselves continually, continually to prayer and to the ministry 
of the word. Something happened when they ministered the word. And this, this is an intensity of desire that I am experiencing is for the same thing that happened when they ministered the word to happen now when we minister the word. It's an intensity of desire. It must be the same. It must be. It has to be. And then in Mark 16, and here it is, in Mark 16 and verse 20, will not take a long time this morning on this because it really is quite simple. But it's, it has a lot of meaning. Mark 16 and verse 20, it talks about, they, and it says, you see, after the resurrection of Messiah, and it says, and they went forth, the disciples, they went forth and they preached everywhere. In other words, they communicated, ministered the word everywhere. And guess what happened? The Lord is working with them. Well, why, why not, you see? Because he is the word made flesh for the, for the purpose of being seen and observed and known. But the scriptures are written specifically to testify about him. And so when the scriptures are ministered, then he is ministered because they speak and testify to him. So when the scriptures are ministered, not just a teaching that comes to us in our minds, but when the scriptures are actually ministered, that's Jesus Christ is being ministered. And when he is being ministered like that, you know what he does? He approves of it. He approves of it. He puts the amen on it, if you like, the so be it on it. He approves of it. And he approved of it, in their case, by confirming the word with signs following. He confirmed the word. See, it's not that he's confirming them with all due respect. It's not that he's confirming an organization. He's not, he's not confirming anybody's church or anything like that or specific individuals so much as he's confirming the word. There has to be this. When the word is ministered in this New Testament pattern, then it is confirmed. So let me just, a bit of a summation word made flesh means for the word to be made visible before the word is made flesh it's still there very much there it had been written in the Old Testament scriptures but the word was made flesh uniquely in the person of Jesus of Nazareth so as to make himself visible and to perform the ministry that he came to perform John also talked about him and he said in him was life. Just He had life in him. He had life in him. Now, let me suggest to you this answers the fundamental question of where did we come from? What is the cause of all things? Life, where did life originate? John said life was in him. And then he said that the life that was in him was the light of men. Because life was in him, then, of course, he was able to give light to men. In other words, men were able to see because of the kind of light that he gave them. 
And so the scriptures testify of him, meaning that the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, reveal him, show him, manifest him, talk about him, describe him. The scriptures describe him. And the scriptures that describe him are intended to be confirmed by him. Intended to be confirmed by him as it is ministered. As it is ministered. Now, I think oftentimes the truth is that many of us, and it's possible for us to spend our entire lives in what we call the ministry. Spend our entire lives in what we call the ministry. Pastors, teachers, evangelists, spend our entire lives in what we call the ministry. And at the same time, without having actually ministered the word in this New Testament pattern in a way. Because when it is, it's intended to be confirmed by Messiah Jesus as it is ministered. Now, the kind of hearts and minds that were needed to recognize him when he was in his earthly tabernacle or body, the kinds of hearts and minds, those individuals who actually recognized him, they did so because of revelation of the Spirit from within. They knew who he was. That kind of heart and mind that they needed then, like Simeon and Anna and others, is the kind of heart and mind that we need now to recognize him in the scriptures as they are ministered. And as God drew individuals to him then, and those whom God had opened up a revelation to them about who Jesus really was, came to him based on that revelation. The same kind of drawing is required by us now as the scriptures are opened up to really know them and understand them and so on. And he said, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And so just a, just a few short thoughts. They are, they are of considerable depth and worthy of contemplation. But on the phrase, the word made flesh, the word made visible so that he could be seen and understood and comprehended. And what applied to him also applies to the scriptures because the scriptures testify to him. And so at the close then of the morning, it would be the emphasis would be this is to, as is written in the Psalms or Proverbs, keep your heart, guard your heart diligently above all things that you guard. For out of it are the issues of life. Your heart is our, is, your, is our spirit on the inside. The condition, the tenderness, the condition of our spirit determines how we are capable of receiving the word with great power. So we really need to receive it with great power so that it produces in us according to its own nature, according to its own kind. And it can only do that as the heart is receptive to it. May that be true of all of us in a very special way. Then the word will be made flesh, if you like, in our lives. Father, we thank you for 
especially we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word being made flesh. We thank you for the wonderful gospels that have been written for the coming of Messiah into the world. We pray that you, by your spirit, would continue to teach us and reveal Jesus to us. Now, you know each of us and know our needs as we are before you in this moment. Minister to us according to your, from your storehouse, according to your provision for us, according to our needs, so that we might be benefited in the way that we need to be. And even now as we draw near to you, as we come to a close of this time of assembly, we place ourselves on the altar. Everything that we are hope to be and all that is of us, we place on the altar. It is the altar that makes the gift holy or sanctifies that which is placed upon it. And we place ourselves upon that altar that we might be sanctified, made usable, made holy, set apart for your service. In Jesus' name, we pray. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to intercede effectually for ourselves and for others. Sometimes the key to ourselves is focusing on others. Whatever, Lord, teach us exactly how you would use us and how you want to equip us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.